Welcome, everyone. Whether you're listening from somewhere in this world or the next, this planet or another, we're glad you're here to join us as we explore unexplainable truths. I'm your host, Wendy Jaglarski. Today, I'll be speaking with best-selling author and contactee, Terry Lovelace. For those of you who don't know him, he has a very impressive background. Terry's a veteran of the U.S. Air Force and has an undergrad in psychology and a law degree from Western Michigan. He served as Assistant Attorney General in both American Samoa and in Vermont until he retired in 2012. Terry's going to be sharing with us an incredible story today. Back in 2012, a routine x-ray of his leg found an anomalous bit of metal the size of a fingernail with two tiny wires attached. What followed were horrific nightmares and intrusive thoughts all surrounding a 1977 camping trip he took with a friend and fellow airman to Devil's Den State Park. This event has changed his life forever, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about what he has to say. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Terry Lovelace. Hey, Terry, welcome to the show. So, yeah, you mentioned 2012. You know, that really is kind of uh, kind of almost the genesis of this thing. Actually, actually, it goes back to, uh, I was in the United States Air Force from 1977, pardon me, from 1973, when I graduated from high school until 1979, so six years. Okay. And I got out of got out of the Air Force in '79, and I started running. Uh, it was kind of a, a fad, a phase. It was kind of a, you know, okay. everybody was doing it. it. Was actually for the time, if you think about it, it was kind of unusual at the time. Not a lot of people uh, ran, you know, for uh, for health reasons. I mean, if you saw somebody running, they were either on an athletic field or <laughs> Are <laughs> uh, running from the police or something like right. that. So, uh, I like it. I like the endorphins. I like the uh, way it managed my weight. And uh, I ran for the next 40 years. Uh, okay. And the reason that's relevant is that when I did my run, and, you know, I didn't run marathons, but I ran, you know, four or five miles every day. But I ran about every day. And every single time I would hit the two-mile mark in my run, I mean, you know, give or take 50 yards, Mm -hmm. uh, there was a spot on my right knee uh, and lateral that would go completely numb. Uh, It was a spot about numb and kind of itchy, you know? Okay. Uh, Weird feeling. Yeah, that's definitely strange. Yeah, and it would last for about 30 minutes and then fade. Uh, And I could take a pen and delineate borders to it and it was it was a perfect circle oh, wow. um, and it, it perfect was a perfect circle it was a round spot on my knee about the size of a half dollar so okay i asked uh, i asked my doctor about it i'm like is this anything i should be worried about and she's like well it sounds quote it sounds like a histemic reaction to me uh so i'm not sure what that means but but she said it's nothing to worry about if it's not affecting your run. Uh, so I didn't worry about it. Okay. And then, uh, I had my abduction event with my friend in 1977, uh, shortly before I got out of the Air Force and became involved in the law, and that became my career. And, you know, there are some careers where, um, you know, coming out with a story like this, would be the end of your career, you know, airline mm-hmm. pilots, air traffic controllers, uh, 
police officers. There's a whole litany of yep. uh, people that would uh, lose credibility. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, well, I never said anything to anybody uh, until I retired. Okay. So I retired in 2012, and um, I retired in January of 2012. In October of that year, I got up and couldn't support weight on my right leg. And I thought, well, that's weird. And I asked my wife, hey, would you run me down to the to the hospital? I, I think I need an x-ray. Something's wrong with my leg. Uh, so she did. I always get my care at the VA. Um, so I went to the VA, saw a nice PA, and um, she wheeled me, you know, had me wheeled into the x-ray room right away. And the x-ray technician took two shots in my leg, one from the front, going front and back, and then one with my leg sideways. And she was kind of perplexed. She comes and she repeats the process one more time. And then she asked me, she says, have you ever been in an accident or something that could account for a piece of metal in your leg? And I'm like, no, you know, I mean, I had skinned knees as a kid, but I've never had any, uh, any real trauma to my right leg. Right. And she said, uh, well, she said, I'm going to call the radiologist down and ask him to take a look. So I, I should say at this point, what they found underneath my kneecap was just a, uh, a what's called a Baker cyst. Uh, it's a benign cyst. It just comes and goes totally unrelated to the thing above my knee or the things below my knee. Okay. Um, but they found two anomalous things on, the, on my x-ray. And the um, radiologist comes in looking kind of annoyed. I mean, you could tell that, uh, well, I mean, I I know uh, that the normal routine is they take an x-ray and it goes and sits in a stack and radiologist, unless there's some urgency, uh, you know, gives the diagnosis, but takes a week for the report to come out. Yeah. So he was kind of annoyed that it come down. Yeah. So he uh, walks in and he, he, pops my first x-ray up on the screen, which is the item above my knee. And I think I sent you an image of that. It's a, it's a square object about the size of a fingernail, and there are two wires attached to it, and the two wires are going up my leg. Wow. And uh, he saw that, and he said, well, you've obviously been in an accident. And he walks over kind of arrogantly and pokes me in and in the side of the leg and says, it'll be right here. And I'm like, what, what's going to be right here, doctor? He says, you're going to have to have a scar there. I said, doctor, I don't have a scar. And he says, well, it's impossible to breach the integrity of the skin and bury something this deep in your, in your tissue and your fascia and, and it not leave a scar. He says, you know, sometimes you gain weight, lose weight. They migrate as you age, but there's definitely a scar there. Um, so it kind of became a challenge and uh, he turned on the overhead lights in the x-ray room because normally it's dark and he examines my leg for like 10 minutes. Then he had his, he had his uh, resident uh, run up and get a handheld black light and bring it down and turned off the lights. Cause I guess scar tissue will uh, fluoresce under a black light. Oh. I thought he could find it like but there is no, there is no scar. I've, I've never had a scar to that leg. And I asked him, cause he was obviously, um, 
he was shaken by that. And I asked him, yeah. I said, Doctor, how often is it that you find a foreign object like this underneath uh, someone's skin and there not be a corresponding scar? And he said, he said, never. He said, I've been a radiologist 23 years. I've never seen, seen this. And now when and, he's telling uh, you this, are you kind of freaking out? Um, being told that you have a little piece of something in your leg that have wires attached? Well, what happened was as soon as I looked at it, um, as soon as he put it on the view box, uh, and even though I'm carrying out this conversation, it struck me that this foreign object that looks like a transistor or something underneath my skin lies directly over that spot that would go numb whenever I ran. Uh. So that that made me think that this thing's been in my leg at least since 1979, I think probably before. Okay. So that was kind of unnerving. That was very unnerving. Um, and it was unnerving because, you know, I thought these things put their hands on me. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't done by a surgeon, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So anyways, there's, there's something else I want to show you that's very unique. And he pops up the next x-ray. And this is a view of my leg from an angle from the side. Okay. And inside the calf muscle of my leg, you can see there's a collection of, of uh, what looked like bone uh, and kind of a floral pattern with even a little dot in the middle. And yeah. uh, I, before he even put it up, he says, you know, you've got some bones in your knee. And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, you know, what's, what's <laughs> odd about that? <laughs> He's like, no, no, you don't understand. And he put it up on the screen, and it's, I mean, you don't need a, a medical degree to see it. Uh, no. And he says, no. I've never seen, I've never seen, this looks like bone tissue. That was the first thing he said. He said, based on the density and the, the characteristics of, of the uh, objects, I believe they're bone tissue. But he said, I've never seen bone tissue spontaneously sprout in the middle of a muscle. I just never seen that before, much less have them arrange themselves into a into this you know floral pattern mm-hmm. to with symmetry. He said it's just I've not, not seen that before. So uh, they uh, they ignored the two uh, implants um, because they identified the cause of my of my knee pain. That was the Baker cyst. Treatment for that was, you know, Tylenol and a pair of crutches, and in two weeks you're good to go. Okay. Um, so I, I went home and uh, immediately ordered a, a set of my x-rays. But what that did, I seeing those on the screen took me back to the event that happened in 1977 when I was uh, in the Air Force. And uh, I'll tell you about that now because that, really kind of, that was really kind of the meat and the potatoes of the whole story. Okay. Um, in seventy in seventy three, when I joined the military, uh, in the Air Force, uh, I wanted to be a medic. I wanted to be a non combatant. Uh, my choice. Uh, and uh, I became a medic slash EMT, and I was a first responder. We worked in, in the emergency room at Whiteman Air Force Base, which is in western Missouri, not far from well, kind of far from Kansas City. It was in a remote area back in the day, back in the 70s, but um, now the area is built up, and there are, there are 
you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, subdivisions and stuff nearby. But it was all just farmland when I was there. Okay. And Whiteman was a nuclear base. Uh, they had nuclear equipped uh, B-52 bombers, and they had a squadron of uh, Minutemen II ICBM missiles that were spread out all over that farmland in uh, launch silos. So it was a pretty tight security place. And uh, the guy that I worked with was a guy called Tobias or Toby or Tobe, depending on if I'm mad at him or not. <laughs> and he, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we were, we were the best of friends. We worked together for three years and his wife and my wife, uh, we're both friends. Uh, we were both married young. I was 22 and newly married. He was 23. Um, and we were kind of um, kind of like the nerds of the squadron, I guess you'd call us. Okay. You know, I, I, was, taking, I was taking night classes, um, you know, to try to help knock out my undergrad. And uh, Toby was uh, wanted to be an astronomer. His goal was to get in University of Michigan and get an undergraduate degree in physics and then get a graduate degree in either astronomy or cosmology. Oh, nice. So, yeah, that was his goal. And he was a smart kid. He was really a very, very bright kid. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Extension University on campus, he took uh, an ACE the two classes that they offered and then took a class, a night class at uh, Central Missouri State University about 10 miles away. So, um, so anyway, we, we, we made, you know, we did, we, we worked mm-hmm. together. We, um, on our days off, lots of times we would, uh, most times we'd play cards, you know, uh, barbecue, uh, and just kind of enjoy each other's company. So uh, working nights, uh, in an emergency room was kind of, uh, you know, you're either you're either playing hearts and laughing it up, or you're working. So, really, there's not not much to do until the phone rings. Right. And uh, we're sitting around one evening, and he said, "Hey, man, I got an idea. Why don't we go camping?" And I'm like, "Camping? Toby, are you nuts, man? I mean, <laughs> I've never been camping." Uh, and I know you're from Flint, Michigan, and I would bet money that you've never been camping. And he says, yeah, but he says, we, we, we should go. He said, it would be fun. He said, I found this place that's got this high plateau, an elevated piece of land, and uh, we can drive down there and find that. We can set up our camp on top of the uh, on top of this plateau, and he said, I'll have a beautiful view of the night sky. Um, and he was one of these guys would sit out on the ambulance ramp on warm, you know, summer nights and just he would watch the sky and he would mm-hmm. point out the constellations. He could time satellites when they were going to come over. I mean, uh, and, you know, in retrospect, and I never did get to find out, unfortunately, but in retrospect, uh, I wonder where that fascination with the night sky came from. Yeah. Yeah, that would so, have been interesting to find out. Yeah, so I, you know, I was against this idea at first, and he's like, "Look, you know, you got a brand new camera." And I, I was known on in the squadron, in the hospital squadron, for being an amateur photographer. I had a little dark room set up in my uh, 
in my our spare bedroom. We both of us lived on the base in NCO housing, you know, just a couple okay. blocks from one another. So, um, unfortunately, when you're on a nuclear base, there's not a heck of a lot you can do with a camera. You know? mm-hmm. So he suggested, let's go down. He says, look, he says, you can photograph wildlife because I wanted to photograph eagles. He says, you can get on this plateau, photograph eagles. I can have a nice view of the night sky. Uh, we could try it out, spend two nights, see if we like it. You know, if we like it next time, let's bring the wives and, and we'll, uh, you know, yuck it up and have a good time. Yeah. So I was fine. Sounds like a deal. Sounds like a plan. So, and it was kind of a plan. I mean, uh, and you know, two 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 kids who've never been camping before. Um, you know, two. How did how do two nerds go about uh, preparing for a camping trip when they've never done it before? <laughs> yeah. It, it, we make lists. You know, we make lists, of course. You know, and then. Uh, yeah. Toby has a bright idea. He goes to the base library, which was which was pretty pathetic. But um, <laughs> he thinks he's going to find a book on how to go camping, right? So he finds a 19, 1958 Boy Scout manual, and he's really proud of himself, really excited. He's like, come on over. He says, I got the book that's going to tell us what we need to know. So we get this 1958 uh, Boy Scout manual, and it's like how to snare rabbits, uh, how to skin rabbits, uh, oh, how to geez. cook rabbits. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to be doing any of that. Uh, <laughs> how to tie nautical knots. Uh, you know, it was just, and we didn't think, yeah. you know, we probably should have got a Cub Scout manual. might have been more helpful. Right. Um, but this thing was of no help whatsoever. And, and uh, we, you know, we asked a couple guys that were kind of the outdoorsy types, you know, hey, we're going to go camping. What should we do? And, you know, and they look at us like we're nuts. Like, look, man, this ain't rocket science. Get a cooler, pack yourself some sandwiches and some beers and some water, and uh, take two inflatable air mattresses, a tent, a couple, swipe a couple mattre- uh, a couple of uh, nice blankets from the hospital, uh, you know, bring them back, uh, mm-hmm. and take some uh, military strength uh, DEET and suntan lotion. And then they said, you know, you're good to go. And we thought, well, you know, maybe this isn't as tough as it sounds. So mm-hmm. we made we made a list, of course, and uh, uh, Toby had a nice big cooler, so he packed most of the food and the perishables, and I got uh, an axe and a lantern from my uh, next-door neighbor and some, some lantern fuel. And we assembled all the stuff we thought we needed, and then we went. The, the, the day rolled around, and we went. And... I can't tell you how excited we were to go on this trip. Um, it was just, um, we were just yeah. ecstatic. I mean, it was. It yeah, was just, sitting out we on an adventure. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, so we were excited. And we drove down at six and a half hour drive. And uh, we got to the state park. And, you know, I have second thoughts on the way down there, and I'm like, hey, man, why don't we stay in the campground? That way at least we can have, you know, electrical hookup, running water, that kind of stuff. And he's like, no, no, no. He says, dude, you don't get it. He says, the idea is to get away from people, you know, to get away from light, artificial light, so I can see the sky. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, if you stay in the campground, you're going to have people on either side of you, on the back of you. He says, you know, you might as well camp at Walmart's parking lot, you know. <laughs> and, 
I'm like, yeah. yeah, you know, maybe you got a point. We went down and, and we made sure we dodged the ranger station. We didn't buy a camping permit. Um, we had a road. We had a we had a map of the park, but it only went so far. And we found this road because uh, we didn't know where this elevation was. We had just heard of it. Um, we found this road that turned from pavement to gravel to just a dirt road. And then we came to this, uh, there was a chain across the road. Uh, there were a post on either side and a chain. And it was a really sternly worded keep out, you know, no entrance, no admittance, no camping, no hunting, no fishing, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, man, I guess we got to find another way. And my friend was observant. He's like, no, no, man, wait a minute. He hops out of the car. And what they had done is they'd taken the end of that chain and locked it on itself and looped it and made like a noose. Okay. And then that was hung over a nail on the opposite side. So I guess park rangers were probably a little bit lazy and didn't want to bother to have to lock it and unlock it. This way they could, if they wanted to get in, it was easy. Well, right. it was easy for us too. So, so we got in and, and we drove through um, some like rough terrain, some bad roads. I mean, you know, better suited for a Land Rover than a, you know, 1966 Chevy. Uh, mm-hmm. We uh, were driving, and my friend had an unerring sense of direction. I mean, he's one of these guys that you can blindfold, spin around, and then he can tell you where north is. For some, I don't know how they do that, but I can't do that. But he could. Yeah. And he kept suggested, suggesting make a right here, try this road, and... Uh, we could then we saw it, then we could see this plateau in the dis, in the distance, and it was it was a high plateau. The plateau was about as high as the treetops, so the top of the plateau was level with the tops of the trees. Okay. So we thought, cool, that was that was it. Did look like the perfect place to set up a camp. And, and now was this plateau had, mostly a grassy area, or were there trees on there as mostly. well? Mostly grass. Okay. You know, it's weird. Uh, I'm glad you asked that question because um, there were no trees, not a tree one on this plateau. It, the time that we went there in 1977, it was just full of knee-high grass and wildflowers and okay. uh, not a tree at all. And I remember in my, in my book, I described that the area was kind of horseshoe shaped. And that's, that's kind of what we came up with whenever we walked the perimeter um, and then a guy on Facebook, uh, sent me two images and says, is this where you stayed? And believe it or not, from Google earth, it's still there. The plateau is still there from a side uh-huh. angle. You can see that it's an elevated plane. And from up, up above, you can see that it's not a horseshoe, but it's a triangle. There's not, uh-huh. a, there's not a tree on it. And I thought this was interesting. I posted them on my Facebook page, uh, my incident at Devil's Den Facebook page. And um, this guy that I talk to every now and then, who's a landscaper down in Alabama, sends me a uh, message and says, uh, hey, if you blow those up real well, you can see that that's, that's cut. Somebody comes up there and cuts that, cuts that grass. You know, so no trees grow. And mm-hmm. I said, well, 
that doesn't make sense. Why would they do yeah. that? He said, don't ask me. I don't know. But uh, And he even found a tractor tire. Uh, Mark's, Mark's, you could see a tractor tire was up there. So somebody, um, we found out later, I didn't find out until after I wrote the book, that this was actually, is actually federal land. Okay. Um, so it's owned by the federal government. So for some reason, the federal government has been cutting the grass on the top of this plateau and keeping it pristine for 40 years. And it's remote, obviously. Yeah. So who's really going in and out of there? And for what reason? I mean, there's no no easy way in or out of there, you know? Yeah. It it doesn't make sense. And, you know, Devil's Den, I should mention this, Devil's Den has a really, I didn't know this at the time, but it has a long and dark history. Um, when I when I first started writing my book, I decided to do a little research on the land, um, and I found that there are two Native American tribes that kind of share that land. Um, and so I did some research. I searched uh, Russellville uh, phone book and a lot of a lot of resources available on the internet, and um, I found there were two two Native American tribes. The Cato, C-A-D-D-O, and the Cajino, which begins with a C, but I'm not 100% sure of the spelling without looking it up again. So okay. Cato and Cajino people, they, they share this land. Um, they don't own it. Federal government owns it, but they consider it their land. Mm-hmm. So I found um, a Native American shaman or medicine woman uh, from the Cato tribe. And I called her up, and I got her number. I called her up, and I said, look, you don't know me. I'm writing a book about Devil's Den. I'm wondering if what you could tell me about it. I know that your people consider it to be part of your land. And she says, well, I can tell you this. It's a place that we transit, a place that we walk across. You know, we go through it to get to a destination. But we don't camp there. We don't fish there or hunt there. Mm. And I said, well, why is that? And she says, because it's cursed land. Oh, wow. And I said, well, how do you know that? And she said, well, you know, I know that because through oral tradition for hundreds of years, our people have known that. Um, as far as knowing the roots, I don't know the roots. I don't know the, the, um, the reason it earned that title. But she said, it doesn't matter. What matters is we know that it's cursed and uh we avoid it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, boy, that's kind of strange. So I also had a friend at uh, Michigan State University who hooked me up with a anthropologist, uh, an archaeologist actually, um, who does um, studies that particular area, the Ozark Mountain area. And I got a hold of this man. And I said, hey, look, I want some information about Devil's Den State Park. Um, I was told by a medicine woman uh, from the Cato tribe that it's cursed land and they don't go there. What can you tell me about it? He says, well, I can tell you this. He says that we found uh, artifacts going back to Neolithic times, going back, you know, 7,000, 8,000 years. Um, And then, you know, more modern also. Uh, we found evidence of campfires uh, and evidence of habitat. 
all around Devil's Den, but nowhere in Devil's Den. He said, mm-hmm. we've excavated this because there's a lot of sites there. There's a lot of caves. There's a lot of limestone outcroppings. He says, we've, we've uh, you know, we've gone and studied that there, there's nothing. We could find nothing there. And I said, well, did you think that's odd? And he said, yeah, I think that's a little odd. So then I, then I did just a little more research. Um, and then I'll cut to the chase here. But this is worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. Um, I found an article from the 1946 Pittsburgh Press, uh, and it um, was about a young girl named Catherine Van Alst. And Catherine um, was seven years old at the time. I'm trying to look up, I have the article, I think, right here in front of me. Um, and she was with her family. Her family was going to, their ultimate destination was El Paso, Texas. Um, and they were, they were coming from Pittsburgh. And they were, they were going to spend the night at Devil's Den, um, maybe two, and then, you know, get up and carry on with their, with their trip down to uh, El Paso. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, here's the article. Uh, it's uh, from 1946 at newspapers.com. Catherine Van Alst, missing child found. Um, but the interesting part of the story is, and there's a photograph of her. And what year was, was that? I'm uh, sorry, 1976? 19, no, 1946. 1946, okay. Yeah, a long time ago, June 24th, 1946. And uh, depending on which what you read, she's either seven or eight. Uh, in this article, it says that she's an eight-year-old. Um, and the story is, she's they, they spent the night, they got up the next morning, uh, they're at a campsite. There's a picnic table there, you know, and mom is preparing uh, breakfast for everyone. And Catherine is there with her two little brothers who are younger than her, and they're all three running around the camper, you know, like kids will do. And uh, the two boys pop out, and uh, the mom looks over and says, boys, where's your sister? And they're like, well, she was right here. Well, she wasn't right here. And she said, mom said, well, go find your sister. Go find Catherine. And uh, they ran off and went to the, you know, the restrooms, all this stuff. And they come back and they said, we can't find her. So they get dad up and they start calling for her. Now, you know, the idea is that she could not have gone far. Uh, mm-hmm. In the article in the Pittsburgh Press, there's a picture of her. She's in her bathing suit. Uh, okay. And she was wearing flip-flops, so she wasn't mm-hmm. equipped. The forest all around the campsite is, is thick brush and rough terrain with a lot of rocks, and uh, it'd be a difficult place to navigate uh, right. in flip-flops. Right. So the rangers get involved by noon, and then later that day, there's an adjacent park to the east, called the Ozark National Forest. And the rangers um, from there to come assist with the, with the hunt. And they, um, 
they got volunteers. They got several police departments. Russellville Police Department brought out dogs uh, who could not get a scent. They were given a piece of their clothing and sat down, whatever that means. And uh, volunteers from Arkansas State University came up in two buses and helped mm-hmm. for a couple of days. And this was this was supposed to be a seven-day rescue. At the end of the seventh day, it would transition to a recovery. So, this was uh, the sixth. This was the sixth day. Actually, she'd spent six nights in the woods. It would have been actually seven days. Okay. Um, And one of the one of the uh, volunteers was a young man named Porter Chadwick, uh, who I tried to find and couldn't. Um, And Porter went. up, there was an elevated place, uh, a high limestone bluff that had an elevation of about 600 and some feet. And to get there, you would have had to walk a zigzag pattern about five miles to get to the top of this. But uh, And the place had been searched multiple times. Um, little Rock, Arkansas sent three planes from Civil Air Patrol looking for this little girl. And Porter Chadwick is at the very top of this of this uh, limestone bluff and he's calling out her name and he said I yelled Catherine and she stepped out from under uh, an outcropping of rock and said here I am oh wow <laughs> and he went over and picked her up and uh, you know he was just ecstatic and uh, he said where have you been and he, she said I don't, I don't know I I don't know where I've been. I woke up here and I thought I should stay here because somebody would come and find me. Wow. So she had no memory, had no memory of what happened to her, how she got there. Um, this story is also, by the way, uh, in David Polite's book. Yeah. It was in his fourth book um, yeah. called The Devil is in the Details. Yep. Yep. I'm familiar with him. I was, as you're Explaining this story and thinking uh, missing 411, David Polites sounds very reminiscent of things that he covers. It's it's crazy. Yes, he listed Devil's Den as a cluster area and told the story of uh, Catherine. But what 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 what's really crazy? In addition to her, you know, memory loss, when she gets back to camp, the mother said, and this was I believe in an article in the they had a bunch of relatives in Kansas city. So it also made the Kansas city star newspaper. Um, and mom said that her hair was clean. And despite the fact that on top of this, where she was at the top of this limestone block, there was no potable water anywhere or nothing for her to drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was perfectly fine, hydrated, uh, hadn't lost an ounce of weight. Um, you know, went to the doctor for a checkup, and other than a couple of mosquito bites on her legs, she was as good as the day she walked away. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, it is crazy. And then, uh, you know, in, in 2017, when I was working on this, you know, I'm calling, trying to get information from, and if, if you've read David Politis, you know it's impossible to get uh, information from the Parks Department, yeah. either state or federal. They, they won't tell yep. you anything. Yeah, which is suspicious in itself, extremely. It's very suspicious. I did find a uh, 
It shouldn't say the jurisdiction. I did find a sheriff's deputy who shared some information with me, and anonymous information is worthless. I know it's hearsay, but um, he told me that uh, lots of people go missing there. And he says, there's all kinds of spooky stuff there. And I'm like, well, define spooky stuff for me. And he said, well, you know, people see orbs of light. um, And uh, there are other, and, you know, I, I had the feeling there's more he wanted to tell me and didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, this was in 2017. Earlier in 2017, we'll just look at 2017 here, just take a year. Earlier that year, there was a young woman, um, and her name uh, is Murphy, Monica Murphy. And Monica Murphy was 28 years old. And uh, you can find her with an easy search, too, Monica Murphy. Um she was found, she was missing for a couple of days and was found at the base of a hundred foot cliff. And uh, it was ruled a suicide. And uh, that, that's, that's all that I could find out. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in August of 2017, there was a young man named Rodney Letterman. And he was from Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And he and a friend had come down to visit the park and walk the Butterfield Trail. Butterfield Trail is a trail that cuts straight through the park. Uh, it's named that because it used to be the Butter Coach, Butter, or Butterfield Stagecoach line uh, back in the 1850s. So um, Rodney mm-hmm. and his friend parked a car, parked a truck, and they get out and they're walking the Butterfield Trail. Now the Butterfield Trail is paved and it's, it's not a challenging walk. It's an easy walk for people. So um, Rodney has, has uh, I believe, asthma. He has a breathing disorder, asthma. Um, and he forgot and left his inhaler in the truck. So they're walking about a mile, and uh, Rodney says, man, i got to sit down for a minute. He says, I hate to ask you, but he says, I, I forgot I left my inhaler in the truck. Would you feel like running back and getting it for me? And his friend's like, sure, no sweat. So the friend runs back, picks up Rodney's uh, inhaler and runs back, um, gone like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no Rodney. And there's just Rodney's phone laying on the ground. And he mm-hmm. hunts for his friend. He calls for his friend. He knew he couldn't have gone far because he was having trouble breathing. So he gets a hold of the park rangers. Uh, park rangers get involved. Um, they had uh, a dog team come up and try to get a scent off the phone and find him. Again, the dog sat down, didn't didn't uh, didn't go out and hunt for it. He just sat down. Uh, uh, I asked the sheriff's deputy, "What does that mean when the dogs just sit down?" And he says, "Well, it means there's no there's no trail. That he never left that area, or he didn't walk away, or they could follow the scent." Wow. So that's, that's kind of strange in and of itself. Right. And uh, organized a massive search, just like they did for little Catherine Van Alst in 1946. 2017, he organized this massive search, uh, 2,500 people, 2,500 acres. Um, Air Na- the Arkansas Air National Guard that has helicopters equipped with uh, what's called FLIR, forward-looking infrared radar. And when you when you use FLIR, you can get a heat signature 
And mm-hmm. you can tell through the heat signature if it's a deer or a human being. You can distinguish between the two. So they they search for seven days. Um, and then they shift from a rescue to a recovery because there's no Radney Letterman. Uh, never found a scrap of clothing or anything. So in my book, mm-hmm. in the preface of my book, I say this is the story of Radney Letterman. Um, and I'll update you if, if, if I ever find news, you know, if something mm-hmm. ever happens and the story develops. So I'll be darned. You know, I published my book in March of 2018. In March of 2019, a year later, there was a young couple walking the Butterfield Trail. And there was a, a woman said, is that a turtle? There was a log right off, right on, but in plain view, right off of the road, right off of the pavement of the trail, rather. There's this log, and there's this white thing sitting on top of it she took to be a turtle. And the guy says, no, I don't think that's a turtle. And he walked over, and they picked it up, and it was bone. And uh, it was the top of Rodney's skull. Oh, wow. Yeah. Bartlesville yeah. Medical Examiner determined that it was his yeah, through DNA. And, you know, they never found a stitch of clothing, shoes, nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a weird place. Yeah, yeah. And here, unbeknownst to you, back in 1977, you guys are venturing into this infamous place. Um, so you guys go down this this trail and you, you find this um, this clearing, this plateau, and, and then what? What takes place next? We drove up on top of it, and I mean, when you make, it's still a dirt road. When you drive up, it's a, it's a steep, it's a steep grade. And when the car, you know, finally goes over the edge and you see where you're at, this whole big, I call it a meadow. It was just beautiful. Just a gorgeous place opens up in front of you. Mm. And, uh, you know, Toby and I are like, yeah, this has got to be the place. Uh, yeah. And he wanted, to, he wanted to set up camp in the middle of the place. And I wanted to set up camp on the side. Uh, we got into a little discussion about that. And we did. We set up camp where I wanted to on the, on the tree line offset. Uh, and there was a beautiful view. I mean, you could see the treetops. And, you know, we did, we did all the fun stuff you do when you camp, you know. And uh, I had... And, and this was, you know, this was atypical for us. It really was. I forgot, I forgot my camp lantern. I forgot the hatchet, the fuel that the guy gave me in a can. Mm. I had carefully packed my camera bag with lenses and film and all kinds of stuff that I need to photograph eagles and wildlife. I left it on my kitchen counter. So oh, jeez. I mean, Toby had a camera, right? Toby had a camera, but I didn't have my camera, you know, and it was a brand new camera. I wanted to try it out. So, well, at least we had a camera, right? Yeah. So, but this, this wasn't like us. I mean, you know, we were used to um, restocking an ambulance, you know, every day we worked. So you think preparing for this trip, I mean, we just weren't that inept. Right. It was odd. Uh, Toby uh, was supposed to bring 10 cans of beer and bought six. He was supposed to bring, um, I forgot the can opener for the beans. He forgot the beans. 
you know, luckily our wives had packed us some sandwiches and snacks and stuff and threw it in a cooler. Uh, <laughs> so we got there and we set up camp. I didn't have a hatchet. So my, you know, Toby had experience. He had a little kid. He had experience putting toys together. So he was an engineer to put this $10 Kmart tent together for us. Okay. And, um, I went out and gathered firewood as best I could without an axe. I mean, I got a bunch of grass and sticks and twigs and bark of wood and, you know, whatever I could find. And we set up camp and, you know, finally, finally pulled it all together. And uh, we set up a campfire with uh, one of us on either, either side of it. So we had a campfire between us uh, and we were close enough. We could have a conversation and, um, you know, we barbecued hot dogs. Like I say, we did all the fun stuff. And, you know, I, I remember telling Toby, I, I said, you know, this must be the allure of camping because this really is pretty pleasant. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was. The temperature had dropped and we had a nice little breeze and it was just, it was just nice. And we're talking a little more and just kind of laughing and cutting up and, there came a a lull in our conversation and neither one of us was saying anything. And then I noticed that, and this sounds so cliche. I mean, it sounds like right out of a movie, but I swear to God, I swear to you, this is true. Uh, And I've had other people in same situations tell me that they've experienced this too. Uh, I noticed that the crickets, the tree frogs, all the insects in the forest were loud. They were so loud we were kind of yelling to hear one another just like 10 minutes before. And mm. now it's dead silent. And not only is it dead silent, but we lost what little bit of breeze we had. So it was still, I mean, it was really, it was an eerie still. To yeah, me. Had yeah. I been there by myself, I'd have gotten a car and left. <laughs> but I thought, you know, I'm, I'm new at this. You know, I'm no, I'm no seasoned camper. Maybe this is normal. I don't know. Um, but it unnerved me. It did. And um, we chat a little bit more. And then I noticed Toby is uh, fixated with something to his left. And I'm about to ask him, hey, what are you looking at? And before I can ask him, he says, um, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And I'm like, what lights? What are you talking about? I can't see them because his torso is in the way. We're both seated on these air mattresses. So I get up, I stand up, and I take a step back, and I can see them. Uh, on the horizon, on the distant horizon, there's a set of three stars. Um, and each one about as bright as the North Star. Uh, and they were twinkling, as stars do. Um, but they were in this tight little triangle. And we're like, what is that? And, you know, we're debating, well, it could, you know, it could be this, could be an airplane, could be a... Uh, shopping center, uh, you know, railroad tracks on a train or something, lights from a train. But then we realized, you know, it's too far off the horizon to have been anything that was resting on the ground. Uh, It had to be something up in the air. Mm. And we knew a lot about aircraft, but we didn't know any aircraft that had that that three-light configuration. So we're watching it, and um, then it finally moves. And when it did... What it did was it rotated like it were on an axis, and it turned about 320 degrees to the right and aligned itself 
were the base of the triangle was horizontal, was, was parallel to the horizon um, with the apex, the point, sticking up, mm-hmm. you know. Okay. And uh, we were kind of excited, like, oh, wow, you know, what, what, you know. Um, and then I felt um, this calm wash over me. And that's the only way I can describe it. Um, it was really almost like mild sedation. It was like, like what an anesthesiologist would give you before you go to surgery. You know, they give you something to help right. you relax before they give you the stuff that knocks you out. And that's the way this was. I felt a little bit like a twilight, um, a little bit like I was in, uh, I don't know, in a different place. It was, it was an odd you know, like an unnatural calm state. Absolutely. Absolutely. Unnatural calm state. And you know what else is, was strange was um, I saw myself, and this doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense. I guess you had to be there kind of thing. But uh, I considered myself more an observer than a participant in this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt kind of detached in some way. And in that way, mildly disinterested, inappropriately disinterested. Um, okay. Because this thing, this thing starts to move up into the sky. And we're watching it in our conversations. I mean, there's not a word said between us. I think Toby said something like, it's really moving now or something inane like that. And uh, the higher it got, um, the faster it moved and the bigger it got. And the three points of light expanded, you know, always ex- equidistant to one another. So we could tell it was one solid object. There wasn't three objects moving in unison. And as it would pass over the fields of stars, because uh, Toby was right, we picked a nice night. There were a trillion stars out that night. There were so many stars out, the sky was a, a blue rather than black. Oh, and wow. When this thing would go past a set of stars, they would blink out and then blink back on when it was past. But we could see the area inside the triangle was black. Um, and, you know, this, this feeling of calm, this feeling of um, mild disinterest just kind of washes over me in waves. And uh, Toby is experiencing the same thing. And it became pretty obvious. It reached like a, a height. It reached like its, its ceiling and paused for just a moment and then started to like on a glide down. And it became obvious in just a few seconds that this thing was headed toward us. And mm-hmm. uh, again, not a word said between us and no anxiety either. So we watched as this thing came in and we could see the shadow of it over the treetops as the three lights were still illuminated. Uh, and uh, it was an eerie looking thing. And it came and docked, parked, whatever you want to call it, right over the um, the meadow. And that meadow was triangular shape, and this thing filled up every inch of that triangle. And I describe it as as being as as big as a like a medical building or something. Um, and now is this just over it. your head, or is this is this directly above your head? No. No, it, it is. And I'm, I'm guesstimating, but I was, I'm pretty good at 
gusting height. And I would I would say it was it was three thousand feet over our heads. Okay. Give or take a little bit. So that's what I thought. Three thousand feet would be about right. But so, directly no, above you. Right on top, but directly above well, we're kinda oh. offset. We're on the tree line, thank God, instead of we didn't camp in the middle of the metal like I wanted to, otherwise oh, okay. it would have been directly over. Oh, okay. So at 3,000 feet, we're, we're just looking at it, and um, I don't think we said a word. I don't think we said anything. And we watched it for a couple minutes, and then a um, underneath this thing, directly in the middle, the center of the triangle, there came a light. And this light was six inches in diameter. It was a column of white light. There wasn't any fog. It was crystal clear outside. But this this light had the quality to it of uh, like a high power searchlight cuts through fog, or flashlight through fog. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came directly from the center of this thing, all the way down, and it landed right in the middle of our campfire. And uh, we just looked at one another, and we looked at this thing, and. Uh, it lasted for just maybe, maybe 60 seconds. And then it, it turned off. I mean, just like somebody hit a switch, it turned off. But immediately in its stead, there came this, um, well, it's like a laser beam. Now, this is 1977. I'd, I'd seen lasers on television, but I've never seen, had never seen one in real life. Um, mm. This was a laser beam about the thickness of a pencil. And uh, very visible, very visible. Um, and it would land at the campsite in a spot for like a tenth of a second and then move and land in another spot. And then a tenth of a second later, move to another spot. So every second, it would land like in 10 different locations. So it gave this illusion that it was like dancing all over our campsite. Oh, wow. Uh, and it hit me. The laser beam struck me in the chest at least twice. Uh, I felt absolutely nothing. Uh, but it hit our car, it hit fire, hit the tent, hit Toby. And I remember having the thought, you know, this thing's checking us out. It's it's um, scanning us or something. It, it, it's checking us out. And you guys and are still just calmly out. sitting there. We are both. Actually, we're reclined. We're kicked back on these air mattresses just uh, <laughs> watching this play out. Okay. And um, our mental status, like I say, was just absolutely inappropriate to the event. It, yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden, and I do mean it was sudden, I felt very sleepy. I mean, really sleepy. I mean, all I wanted to do was go to sleep. And about the time this feeling that I need to go to sleep comes across me and comes over me, my friend Toby stands up and he says, well, I guess the show's over. And he picked up his air mattress and he walked over to the tent and he tossed the air mattress in the tent and just fell on top of it. And I thought that looks, that looks like a good idea to me. And uh, I did the same. I picked up my uh, my blow up uh, air mattress and went over to the tent. I tossed it in. Um, I fell on top of it and I could hear Toby snoring already. 
And, um, you know, the last, my last thought was, um, because when I brought up the crickets and the tree frogs going silent, he was real insistent, like, hey, man, we've been laughing and making a lot of noise. You just watch. They'll be back. And my mm-hmm. last thought was, well, they didn't, they never did come back. And, uh, and then I was out. Um, and I was out somewhere between four and five and a half hours. Uh, the reason there's, we can't pin it down is we both wore uh, wind-up watches, mechanical watches. That's what we wore in the day. Um, both of them had stopped at 240. You know, mine was at 240, Toby's was at 242, but they were both stopped. They were both broken. They never worked again. Wow. So we had no reference as far as the time goes. Uh, we didn't we didn't find look at the watches till later. But um, so we're both out. I'm unconscious and I'm awakened by these lights that are flashing through my tent, cutting through the canvas and lighting up the inside of that tent like a ballpark at night. I mean, just incredibly bright. And uh, I wake up, and I, I don't have my wits about me. I, I wake up, and I'm in kind of a haze or something. I'm, I'm not, uh, well, I just don't have my wits about me. And I'm like, well, where am I? Oh, yeah, we're camping. That's right. I'm camping with Toby. And uh, these lights keep flashing. And they're very bright. They're like a, you know, like a camera flash. They're really bright. And uh I'm trying to think, well, what could this be? I'm thinking, well, this must be a park ranger's truck. That's what this is. And those are the overhead flashing lights, and they're here to kick us out. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I also heard a droning noise, um, a noise that was, I describe it as it's more powerful than it was loud. Kind of like being okay. next to a speaker at a concert, you know, and there's a big a bass note played, and you can feel it reverberate in your chest. It right. was that kind of thing. I woke up and I sit up and the first thing I noticed when I sat up was in one of these flashes of light, I could see my boots were untied halfway down and that wasn't right. Uh, I did not untie my boots. I did not unlace them. I didn't take them off. I left them on intentionally. Um, and and I is it still dark outside at this point? Oh yeah. The only time I okay. could see uh, now, the, the apex of each point of the triangle has a light on it, but it's dimmed. Uh, so it's enough to light up the uh, the metal some, but it's not enough to illuminate the inside of the tent. So really, okay. to see clearly, I'm relying on these flashes of light okay. uh, that, I, again, I thought were coming from a park ranger's truck. So, um, yeah, so my sock is on sideways, and I knew that I didn't do that. I mean, you know, one of the things they teach in the military is take care of your feet. You know, if you don't take care of your feet and you can't walk, then somebody's got to take you. And then that's, you know, two people out of action. So absolutely, you your feet, you know, it's a habit I still do. So I was annoyed and I couldn't understand it. I took off my boots, I put my socks on correctly, laced them up, and then turned my attention to my friend who's immediately to my left. It's a little tent. And in one of the flashes of light, I can see that he's got tear tracks running down the side of his face. Mm-hmm. Now, all of that feeling of mild disinterest, of, um, of uh, calm, of sedation, 
when I saw the tears on his face, that all went away. I mean, like in a flash, it just evaporated. And I was absolutely scared out of my wits. I could not imagine what would make this man cry. I knew him well. I mean, I could not imagine what could make Toby cry. And I still don't know what's going on. And I'm like, Toby, what is it, man? Is it Park Rangers? And he does the universal thing, like with his finger across his lips and says in a whisper, be quiet, they're still out there. And I'm like, who's still out there, Toby? And he's hyperventilating. So I'm on my knees. I'm I'm peeking out my flap of the tent. Um, And I can see two things. The first thing that I noticed was that this giant triangle thing that was 3,000 feet above us when we went to bed had descended. And it's now 30 feet above the meadow. Oh, my God. And that and now we really had an idea how big it was. And it, it, was like a, it was like a medical building. It was just this gigantic thing. I, I did a hand-drawn picture of it. Um, it's in the back of the book. I don't know if I sent you one or not. Yes, I yes, have. I did. I saw it, yes. Uh, so, very yeah, detailed. that's from, uh, yeah, well, you know, I drew that in a, in a notebook in 1978, uh, about eight months after the incident, um, I kept a journal. I kept a ledger of everything that happened to us, um, luckily. And it yeah. came real in handy. And I'll explain that later, too. But uh, So this thing is, is 30 feet above the ground, and it's right, right, right. We're all set off, offset to the side, but, you know, uh, it's just right there. And the second thing I saw were uh, about a dozen, maybe 15 kids, and they're walking around, and they're all paired up in, like, twos and threes. And, you know, they're walking around, not like they're looking at the ground looking for something. They're looking around. They're looking around like tourists or something. Wow. And I said, and I whispered to Toby, I said, Toby, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night? And uh, that's when he's trying to get control of his breathing. And he says, Terry, look at them. Don't you remember they took us and they hurt us? He says, look at them. They're not human beings. Wow. And that stunned me. I was stunned. And I looked out my flap of the tent, and he was right. They were not human beings. They had the spindly torsos. They had the... the large heads, um, and they also had a very distinctive gait. They walked funny. They walked like their legs were maybe hinged to go backward a little bit with each step. So they had a real peculiar gait. Um, hmm. And we're just scared to death. We're afraid they're going to... I can imagine. Distance um, and we just don't want to do anything to, to draw attention to ourselves. So right. um, while we're watching them, and I don't know how much time passes, 15 minutes, half hour, I don't know. Um, there came another light came on from underneath this thing, dead center. There came another light on, and it had that same white light visible quality to it that that first light had that landed in our campfire. Um, so it was like a big lighted area. It was a, it was a column, and it was... I'm guessing 30 feet in diameter. It was about as wide as it was tall off the ground. 
Mm. And as soon as this light comes on, and it comes on just like flipping a switch, all these little guys, it draws their attention immediately, and they all start walking towards it. Um, not at a rush, but just meandering towards it. And while we watched, these things would step into this light, they said in twos and threes, and they would just dissolve. They would just dissolve into the light. Kind of oh like the goodness. old Star Trek. The old Star Trek thing where they had a transporter or something. I wasn't a yeah. Star Trek fan, so but they dissolved like that. You know, um, they went from being looking solid to semi, semi-solid to just to nothing. Yeah. And we watched. They materialized. They materialized. Um, and we watched until the last two uh, dematerialized. And then as soon as they were gone, that light turned off. And the lights on the points of the triangle changed in color. And they changed from multicolor, yellow, greenish, white, to all white. And this thing was, I'm guessing, five stories tall. And on each point of the triangle, well, I could only see two, but on the two that I could see, there was a, like, I called it a light bar, but there was some kind of bar that ran up and down the length of the, or the height of this thing. And they had like a a little beam of light and it would travel up and down and up and down that light beam, that light bar. Hmm. And I thought, you know what, I bet that's what makes it look like a twinkling star when it's in the sky. Uh, and I think uh-huh. I'm right. I think that that did. Yeah, so, that makes sense. While we're watching, um, the thing takes off. And it doesn't take off like a rocket. It takes off about like a hot air balloon. And it just lifts off the ground and uh, made kind of a, a small turn and then just kept going up. And the higher it got, the faster it moved. And we rolled over on our backs with our heads stuck out the tent so we could watch it until so it was three points of light and then one point of light and then the thing was gone. And uh, we we knew we needed to get out of there. Um, I'll tell you how afraid we were. We, I was so afraid. I, I did not want to run to the car. Uh I was afraid of doing that because um, I feel like we'd be vulnerable. You know, all I had over my head was a piece of canvas, but it gave me cover. You know? Right. And I still, had, I still have that uneasiness to this day. I, I can't walk across an open field. Matter of fact, I'll walk a mile out of my way to avoid doing so. Wow. Uh, so I got, a, I got a couple odd phobias that. Uh, yeah, it's traumatizing. PTSD related, no doubt. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we sat there in the tent, and I was afraid to move. And finally, my friend told me, says, look, man, pull yourself together. we got to get out of here. I don't think they're coming back. Let's start to the car, get in the car, and leave. Uh, and that's what we did. And uh, go back to base. And we were hurt. Um, what they did was, I don't know how they did to us, but we had a burn all over our bodies. Um, I mean, my scalp, the soles of my feet, under my arms. I mean, I had like the worst sunburn you could ever get without blistering. 
or peeling. Oh, wow. It was weird. And I also had, uh, we both had uh, flash burns to the eye. Flash burns are what like an arc motor would get if he didn't use the hood to shield his eyes from the from the flame. Okay. Uh, and that's that's basically a bad sunburn to the cornea of your eye, and it's very painful, and they're very photophobic. Mm. So, and the third thing was with dehydration. We were so dehydrated. I remember um, relying on Toby to help navigate me out of this place, and I'm like, you know, I turned on the dome light for a second. I said, look around this car, see if you can find I'll drink anything as long as it's not poison. And uh, he's in the same shape, right? And he can't find anything. There's nothing there to drink. And, uh, you know, there's there's nothing out there. I mean, it's all farmland. Uh, so we made it back, back to Blacktop and headed north to head back to base. And uh, finally came to a little gas station about dawn. Uh, you know, a little place for locals. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we went in and uh, used the restroom first, then went in and had to buy something to drink because we were so thirsty, so dehydrated. And, it, you know, it, I want to mention this because it was kind of, it, it was the bright spot of our day. There was this old guy behind the counter uh, who looked to be 80, I mean, he looked like he was right out of a John Deere tractor catalog. You know, he had the John <laughs> Deere cap on. You know, he had his big reading glasses on. Uh, he had like a, a dino cup that he was using because he's chewing tobacco to spit into. Uh, you know, the plaid shirt, the whole thing. And uh, I went to I paid for my gas. I paid for my soda. And he's getting me some change. And he pulls his glasses down and looks at us. And he had this Southern Missouri accent, I guess. And he said, it ain't none of my business, but what the hell you fellas been into? And uh, it struck me as funny. And I said, I don't, I don't know. And he says, well, you better get yourself someplace where you can get yourself some help. And he said, you want to use my phone? I don't care. You can use my phone. I said, no, 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 we're just, we're just going to the air base. We're just a couple hours away, but thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so we must, we must have looked rough, you know? Right. And we got home and, um, you know, understand we worked at the, at the hospital. That was the medical squad and that was our, our duty station. That's where we worked. Uh, so neither one of us were real thrilled about going to the hospital but we knew, I knew I had to. I had a 103 fever. Matter of fact, before my wife took me to the hospital, she uh, made a bath water for me with Epsom salts or something. And I drank like 10 tumblers full of powdered lemonade. I just could not get enough liquid in me. I was so dehydrated. Uh, and my fever dropped. And uh, I chewed up a couple of aspirin. And uh, got in the car. She drove, drove me to the hospital. Now, everybody in the squadron knew that we were making this trip this weekend. Mm-hmm. So they weren't expecting to see us, you know, for a couple of days. Uh, and we got there, and uh, all people we know, all people very kind to us. I mean, I think medical people do that. I think they take care of their own. Yeah. And, and you know, they they wheeled us, but it was odd. They, they separated the two of us. They took Toby into an exam room and took me into a separate exam room. 
And in that exam room, I had the most thorough medical exam of my life. Um, wow. And the doc just asked me, he said, God, didn't you wear sunscreen? Did you take your clothes off? How did you get burned like this? I said, Doc, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I I don't, I don't have any explanation for it. We went to bed. Now, we had agreed. There was very little or no conversation on the drive back. Uh, but we had agreed that we would not say anything about a UFO uh, okay. the size of a Walmart. You know, we didn't right. end up in a psych ward. Uh, so, but we're also averse to lying. I mean, neither one of us were liars by nature. And I said, well, let's do this. We'll say we went to bed feeling weird. We woke up sick as dogs and we drove home. So that was our story. Okay. And, um, and just to give you a, just to give you a heads up here, we have a little less than 15 minutes left. So just, just okay. so you know, but this, this time is flying by, I tell you. It, 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 yeah, it does. I don't know. I'll pick up the pace because there's really an important part of this I want to get to. Sure. Um, that is that while I'm in my, the doctor's finishing up on me, and these four guys walk into the, the exam room. It's the base commander, the hospital commander, and two guys in civilian clothes. I didn't recognize. I didn't know them. And the hospital commander was the only one who spoke. And I was on pretty good terms with him, and he was a good guy, uh, but he was very formal and very authoritative. And he said, look, he says, Sergeant Lovelace, you're to have no contact with Sergeant Tobias in any way, shape, or form. It means you're not to see him, you're not to visit with him, you're not to speak to him, you're not to try to communicate with him through any third party, you're not to write him, he's not to give you anything, you're not to give him anything, and on and on and on and on. This uh, uh, really uh, in detail, no contact order. Yeah. And he said, if you disobey this order, Sergeant, there'll be severe consequences. Do you understand me? And I mean, I understood. He said, yes, sir, you know, loud and clear. Um, but no, I didn't really understand it. what was going right. on. Um, yeah, makes no sense. So I'm in a hospital room. I'm in a hospital for three days and two nights, and we got 30 days off duty to recover. Um, and I was weak as a kitten for three weeks. Uh, I really was. And I'm in my hospital room, and this is, I know I'm going home the next morning. And my night nurse, who I know well, comes in. She's going to give me a a shot of something for pain and sleep, I guess. Um, And two guys in blue business suits followed her in. And one one was about 50, one was about 30 years of age. And the elder of the two says to this nurse, If that's going to sedate Sergeant Lovelace, it's going to have to wait. We have to ask him a few questions. And they flash credentials at her. And she kind of is annoyed. And then as she's walking toward the door, this older guy says, and I didn't understand the reason for the, why he had to be so rude, but he said, and shut the door on your way out. And I thought, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know. Um, But I mean, I, I, I could tell these guys were cops. I mean, these guys were obviously, they were, they were policemen. Uh, and, you know, that, that's right. I mean, I'm 22 years old, never been in trouble a day in my life. Um, and here I got the police. I'm thinking, what do we do? We burn down the forest or something? What have we done? Because, um, you know, when we left, we left everything we had there. The cooler, the tent, air mattresses, 
Toby's backpack, which had his address on base. So that's wow. how I found this. I think what we did was we didn't put that, that chain back up uh, across the road. And I think park rangers must have noticed that chain was down. They drove in. They found our campsite. They found Toby's backpack. They found that we were, we were in the Air Force from the air base. They called the air base. And that's how this all came and put this whole thing in motion. Yeah. And uh, this guy did an interrogation of me. Uh, and he's like, you know, well, what were you guys doing down there? You know, you lost everything intact. Uh, and he had this distinct accent like Calvin Parker has, you know, Mississippi or Alabama, I don't know which. Um, and I asked him, I said, sir, am I in some kind of trouble? And he looks over at the captain uh, and he says, son, would we be here if you weren't in trouble? And they laugh at that. You know, they get a good laugh out of that. And uh, I'm just sick to my stomach. I don't know what to do. And uh, he says, well, I want to know why you abandoned your campsite. Obviously, you plan to go back. And I said, no, sir. We just woke up sick and wanted to come home. And um, he interrogated me. And I understand now. I mean, at one point in my career being a, a, a DA, I understand that it was an interrogation process and there was a method to it and some of that entailed um, an intimidation. And he succeeded. He, he succeeded. I was, I was definitely intimidated. Um, so the captain leaves and it's just me. It took about 20 minutes. The captain leaves and it's just me and this older OSI agent uh, in my room. And my head on my bed is near my door. And he puts his hand against my door. And he leans down next to my ear. And he says, son, I know. And you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something out there, didn't you? Mm. And I thought, and I didn't know how to answer. I, I, I didn't know what to say. So I didn't answer. And he says, oh, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. And he says, I want your film and I want your camera. And I said, it just slipped out. I shouldn't have said it, but I said, sir, I never took a single picture of it. Wow. And then he got this real tough guy affect on his face. And he said, I don't believe you. So that's the way that ended. Uh, some weeks later, they hauled me into the OSI office and I, um, uh, I was hypnotized and given a drug called sodium amytal, which is a short-acting hypnotic um, that's to enhance your memory. Uh, and what they wanted to find out, they were afraid. They were definitely afraid I had a 36-exposure roll of film hidden somewhere of this uh, thing. Yeah, so obviously they were well aware of it. Yeah, they knew I was a photographer. Uh, you know, they, so, you know... Uh, they asked me under hypnosis, you know, did you tell these agents the truth? And I said, yes, sir, I did. And uh, the hypnosis session is something for another time. But that's, that's pretty much the gist of the story. After that, they were satisfied that I wasn't hiding film. Um, I was going to get a, um, a reprimand for trespassing on the federal land, but that never came to pass. Nothing, nothing came of that. You know, a year and a half later or so, I got out of the Air Force and, uh, you know, went on with my life. Um, 
But what I took away from that was these set of phobias and uh, 40 years of nightmares. And, uh, and like I said, there was nobody I could discuss it with. I mean, my peers in the legal community would have, would have uh, thought I was crazy. I would have lost my government job for sure. Right. So now we only have about maybe six, six minutes left. Um, is there anything that you recall um, from, you know, did you inside the ship? Yeah. Uh, you know, or should we leave that for part two of our interview? So, you know, um, is it something you... That would make a good part two. Taylor, what okay. I'll do in the time we have left is I'll describe the interior of the thing for you as I remember sure. it. You know, I hope everyone understands. I was in that thing for somewhere between five and five and a half hours. Um, okay. Based on when it became dawn. And um, I don't and never have had a clear linear memory of everything that happened to us. Never did. Mm -hmm. Um, But as soon as my friend Toby said to me, when we were in the tent, they took us, Terry, don't you remember? They took us and they heard us. As soon as he said those words, you know, bam, I had flashes of images, just uh, little bits and pieces, tiny vignettes. Uh, And I remember that we were inside the craft and, um, I was aware that I was standing there and I couldn't move anything except my eyes and my eyes are darting all over the place. Cause I'm trying to take in every inch of this thing I can thinking this is important. I got to remember this. And, um, I didn't know, I thought they took us to another place because the inside of the, of the thing that we were in the building or the ship or whatever it was, was twice as big. I mean, if the, if the thing that landed in, in, the, in the metal was as big as the Super Walmart, this was like uh, an NFL stadium. I wow. Mean, it was just absolutely a myth. So I don't know if I were in there or, in, or taken some other place. I have no way to know. But it was impressive because of its size. And I'm looking all around, and everything is, is white or stainless steel, uh, and the light inside. It's just absolutely incredible. It's like, you know, like if you went around your house and put 500 watts in every lamp and turned them all on, you know, it was just, it was just crazy bright in there. And I think that's what gave me the burn to my eyes. Uh, I don't know what gave me, well, it could have been that. I'm not sure what gave me the burn to my skin. I don't understand that. Um, but, uh, and they had, they had stripped us. And I was holding my clothes and my boots in my hands in front of my chest and I couldn't turn my head to see him but I could perceive that my friend Toby was right next to me and the next thing I remember was um, I heard a woman scream and and it, and it scared me I mean I was already scared but it, that scared me because you know there, there's all kinds of screams. I mean, you can jump out, scare somebody, go boo, and they'll scream. And you know, then there's a scream that you uh, that goes with being in pain. And mm-hmm. it sounded like a woman in pain. Uh, it was sharp and piercing, and uh, and it scared me. Um, was this just um, the, one giant room, uh, the size of a, a stadium, or were there 
you know, was it just one large open space? There was a, what I, yeah, it was like an atrium. It, so it was open all the way up to the top, but all around there were these different levels of uh, walkways and corridors. Oh. You could see doors that went somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was so big that I had trouble seeing the opposite end of it. Making wow, that's incredible. It, is, it was absolutely the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. And I saw uh, a golf cart without wheels tooling around. I saw a bunch of these uh, these little gray guys. And, 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 you know, I have a theory about them. I don't, I don't think those things are living, sentient beings, at least the ones I ran into. There may be multiple variables. I don't know. But the ones I ran into, I don't think are conscious uh, or sentient in the way that you and I are. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think they're like little robots. You know, maybe like artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, quantum computing, God knows what. And they, they, they right. these things are manufactured. Yeah, a lot of people say that. Did you see anything um, other than the grays? I did. I saw one six-foot-tall being. Uh, and I probably should save that for next time because it's kind of okay. a detailed uh, thing. And then uh, I also have scant memories of uh, being in an exam room. Wow. And now when you were in here, were you, were you terrified? Were you still in that state of, of calmness, uh, but just curious? No. Or? No, I was absolutely terrified. All terrified. of that calmness, all of that sedation left me the moment Ted said, the moment Toby said, don't you remember, Terry? They took us and they hurt us. Uh, and as soon as he said that, boom, I was, I was, and I was terrified throughout the whole thing. Um, wow. Well, it's been a fascinating, was, very fascinating, uh, story experience that you had. Um, and I definitely would love to interview you again, uh, to go into more detail about what ultimately ended up happening to Toby and, um, more of what happened, what you, uh, ended up remembering with what happened when you were on that ship. Um, before we leave, is there any um, website that you could maybe tell our guests uh, if they want to learn more about you or um, maybe purchase your book? Sure. I, I have a website that I don't maintain, I'm embarrassed to say, but it's got some, some interesting photographs on it. Um, it's terrylovelace.com. Uh, I also have a Facebook page. That's uh, Incident at Devil's Den. That's the title to the book, Incident at Devil's Den. And the book is only available on on Amazon, and it's available in print with pictures in it uh, or Kindle. Uh, And I also did an audio book. So you have your choice between the three. Um, And in the audio book, and all of them help tell the entire story. So. Awesome. Well, yeah, I would be delighted to come back. I appreciate that. That would be just yeah. great. Yeah, definitely. This 90 minutes has flown by. I want to take this time to thank you for sharing your incredible story with us today. I very much look forward to speaking with you again for a part two of this interview. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, and until next time, take care. Take care.